Welcome back, everybody, to the Rooted in Logos podcast, episode number 64. My name is Brad, and this week we are recording live. So we are diving into apologetics week number four, and we are recording live from our church. So it's going to sound a little weird, a little different, but we're excited to do something a little different, throw a new wrinkle into this, and get rolling on why we believe the Bible is reliable and how to answer some arguments that people have against the reliability of the Bible. We're going to start that this week. We're going to do it again next week, finish it up. So enjoy the live episode of the Rooted in Logos podcast, episode number 64. Be sure to like us on Facebook, social media, Instagram. Give us a five-star review on Apple, and we will see you guys next week. Enjoy the show. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we praise your holy and awesome and your precious name. We thank you so much for yet another beautiful day that we get to enter into your presence and we get to read your word and study your word more. My King, as we go into your word, I I ask again yet for your understanding and your wisdom and that you would grant that to us and that you would bless this time that we have together as brothers and sisters. And it is your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so as some of you know, maybe all of you, I don't know, we, we do a weekly podcast and we talk about different theological issues and different uh, things in the church, trying to dive deeper into the Word. It, it actually helps us grow a lot, too, and hopefully we impart some of that. Uh, this week, because of scheduling and, and whatnot, um, we didn't get a chance to record for the episode this week, so we're going to record this. We want you to talk and interact with us. I'm probably, as long as the audio comes out fine, just going to put it out as is. Whatever happens in here is what's going to go out over the airwaves <laughs> on Wednesday. So, yeah. we talk about predestination? <laughs> you know, that's actually on our list of things to talk about in August. That's, that's a different, not in here, but that's a different thing. But yes, we will. Uh, <laughs> so that's what this is. Hopefully the recording comes out well. We'll, we'll find out. But uh, So this week we're going to kind of move into more of a practical uh, side of apologetics. And we're going to talk about the canon of Scripture. So we spent the last, what, three weeks, four weeks? Yeah. Kind of laying a foundation of... Sufficiency. Sufficiency, yeah. why, having a high view of Scripture, and getting our mindset you know, to... We love Scripture. We love the Bible, and, and we have to know it to defend it, and know it to argue it or argue for it. So, we've kind of done that. I hope we've done that well. Um, so, we're going to move into answering some questions that people are going to have and people come up with. And uh, I have six claims that we're going to go through over the next probably two weeks. Um, probably hopefully try to get through three of them today. Yeah. But I have six <clears throat> claims that people make about the Bible to try to discredit it, and we're going to kind of talk about how we can answer those if those questions ever come up. And Austin's going to go through some of the history of of the church, church history, yeah. how the Bible kind of was put together, how we got these 66 books. Um, the first thing I do want to say a couple things. One, we talk about the canon. It's just uh, you know a theological term for the list of all books that belong in the Bible. So we have 66 books that we believe is the canon of Scripture, it is a closed canon, cannot be added to, taken away from. And this is important because we need to understand how we came to consider the 66 books of the Bible the Word of God. So it's important to kind of know that and have an understanding of that. Um, 
And if we have any doubts, like if we're doubting scripture, we're doubting the canon of scripture, our arguments kind of fall apart. And again, the sufficiency of scripture is important and imperative to believe and to understand before we can start defending it. Uh, One definition I want to put out too, I'm going to use the word variant a decent amount in talking about some of the claims of the New Testament manuscripts. That just means a difference, means a difference in wording or a difference in sentence structure from the translations and from the different manuscripts that we have. So um, just so we kind of understand terminology. So I'm going to let Austin kind of take us off and get rolling on the history side of things. Cool, cool. I'm ignoring those. All right, go ahead. All right, so yeah, um, <clears throat> looking at the Bible, looking at the question of can you trust it? Can Do you know that all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God and they are the Word of God? Okay, why these 66 books? Why not other books? Why not uh, the Quran? Why not the Book of Mormon? Why, why not other books like that? Uh, when you have a conversation and people ask what you believe and you, you tell them, you know, what, what's the most important question? Well, it's, most people say it's how, how are you saved? Well, in order to be saved, you believe with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Okay. Well, where do you get that? Well, we get that from the Bible. Okay. Well, how, why is your book more, uh, more important than any of the others? Why, why does it have more authority than any of the others? And one of, uh, two of the most common answers that we, we get actually, uh, the first one is, uh, I believe just because that's how I was, I, I was raised that way. That's it, a very dangerous answer because, okay, say you are in a, a high school or you are in college and you use that and your professor then looks at you and it, it now becomes, okay, you were raised by your parents. At this point in time, you probably realized some things that your parents told you that weren't quite true. Uh, simple things like uh, don't, don't, don't make that face. Your face will get stuck. You know, stuff like that. S- simple things. But there are some things that your parents have said that turned out not to be true. Okay, well, now you're going to this professor, and you're now learning things from him. So now what he has is the authority. So the way you were raised now includes this professor. So it kind of throws that authority out the window. The next question we have is, because it worked for me, or I believe it because it changed my life. That's another dangerous answer. The reason being is uh, anyone who believes in um, Islam, who believes the the prophet Elijah Muhammad was the Messiah in Islam, that changed their life. Our eight-month-old had mango for the first time, was it last week? Changed her life. She did not want to let that go. So there are things that change our lives. And to use that as a defense of Scripture, it, it might be true. It might. It, it, I'm, I'm sure hope it changed your life. I hope it keeps changing your life. But that's not a good or sufficient answer to say why this is the authority. So to give an answer for that is we have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's what we believe. That is the authority of Scripture. So to... 
as I go through that, I'm going to kind of pick that apart and go through Scripture a little bit, give some history, but I'm going to break that apart. Um, you know, having a reliable collection of historical documents. That's important. Historical documents and that they are reliable and that we have a collection of them. The difference between our book, our holy scriptures versus others is it's a collection of books. Unlike the Quran where it's one book written by one man, whereas our book is a lot different. Or or the Book of Mormon, which is one book written by one man. In the 1800s. Saw it in a in a hat. It came to him in a hat. So yeah, though that's a fun, <laughs> it's a fun fun, fun conversation. But uh, yeah, we have a, a collection of books that were written by multiple authors. Yes, throughout hundreds of years. And our our goal here isn't to prove the Bible. That's not our job. That's not for us to do. Um, Charles Spurgeon says it best. It's why would you defend a lion in a cage? Just step out of the way, let let the lion out, let him let him do the, the job. And basically what that is is use the scripture, let it do its job. Don't stand in front of the lion with a sword, just let him let him go. So we're not here to prove it. We're here to answer the question. And the question is, why do you believe that the Bible is authoritative? And then we answer that question. We don't try to prove it, we just answer the question. So Moving on. So we're appealing to the highest authority, which is the Bible. Whenever we enter into any conversation, uh, we've talked about this in the first week, uh, presuppositional apologetics or classical apologetics. As believers, as we believe that this is the authority, we cannot set the authority aside. Even if we're going to dive into this deep philosophical conversation with a staunch atheist, he doesn't believe that scripture is the highest authority. We know it is, so if we close the Bible and set it aside and enter into this conversation on worldly knowledge and worldly wisdom, we have just we've almost admitted defeat because we've set aside the authority and stooped down to the, the level of natural or human wisdom, which we, we can't really do that. Can we have a conversation with them? Yes, but at all times we need to be able to have this at the highest authority mark. If that makes sense. Okay. So, um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. If you guys would like to read it with me, you may. Yes. Real quick. How... Okay, so... Devil's advocate. Yes. Um, how can you say the Bible is the highest authority over the Holy Spirit? Now that you are saying that. Right. Well, what is the Bible? God's Word. God's Word, all right. Who spoke God's Word? God. Through who? Jesus. The Holy Spirit. So, so God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, His Word, it is all three of them, right? So, and that, yeah, we can go into that too. But at the end of it is, it is the Holy Spirit. It is Christ. It is God. The authority is given by God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to us by way of Scripture. It's what we talked about a few weeks ago where... You know, there are going to be times where we run into things in the Bible we don't fully understand. Yeah. Talked about how, you know, when we're looking for guidance in areas of our lives, there might be some examples that are exact parallels to what we're going through. But a lot of times there aren't. And so there's going to be some subjectivity, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and, you know, guides you and says, okay, this is God's will through the Word. You know, that's the main way He speaks to us. 
Yes. Answering his question, you know, that's like when Moses went up on the mountain and come back down. Have you seen the face of God? God is not human. God is spirit. He spoke to me in spirit. Right. Well, and then Jesus says, you have not seen the face of God. Well, even yeah. Moses couldn't, right? He saw yeah. his back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm, I misspoke. It's 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Yeah, got that one wrong. All right. Man, I'm sorry. I had it written wrong. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voices borne to him by the majesty, majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, this first of all, that no, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, reliable collection of historical documents. Dive into that a little bit. So, like I said, unlike most holy books, we have a collection of books instead of one. Um, looking at just a few quick facts, there are 66 books in this Bible. There are 40 different authors of this Bible. It's written within a span of 1,500 years on three different continents, written in three different languages. Um, hundreds of different topics written by men of all sorts of different backgrounds. You have fishermen, you have kings, you have doctors, you have tax collectors, you have boat makers. Uh, I mean, he didn't write it, but looking at... Um, Anyway, Moses is coming to mind. But Moses writing the first five books of the Bible. Noah? Thank you. Noah. Yeah, Noah didn't write. Anyway, um, I have the book of Enoch running through my mind. (laughs) So yeah, there there are all types of different men that have come from all walks of life writing this by way of the Holy Spirit, by way of God. So So this gets me to claim one, and I'm going to focus a little bit more on the New Testament uh, because that's where our focus typically is today. But the first claim that people will make uh, is that we don't have the original New Testament manuscripts. So we only have copies of copies. So we cannot know if what we have now is the original is what the original manuscript said. That is one of the arguments that I've heard a few times from people when having this conversation is like, well, we can't know what the original said because we don't have any, we don't have any copies. Uh, the New Testament, I mean, it's true. We don't have the originals. We have to concede that point. We do not have the original copies. But all ancient literature we have today, we have by way of copies. We don't have original copies of a lot of these different ancient works. Um, that being said, the New Testament does differ from other ancient works because it is the best attested ancient book 
that we have. So let's look at, um, well, another point, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> let's look at some other significant works uh, that are ancient works. Um, so the works of the Roman historian Tacticus, is that his name? Uh, they were written in the first century. We have three manuscripts. We don't have his original copies, but we have three copies of the originals. We have three. All right, the Institutes by Gaius. These are probably books we haven't read, probably works we haven't all studied, or I haven't studied any of these, but they're pretty significant as far as ancient history goes. Uh, the Institutes by Gaius were written in the second century. We also only have three manuscripts. The History of Rome was written in the first century by that guy. We only have one manuscript. And finally, the Jewish War was written by Jewish historian Josephus, and it was from the first century. We have 50 manuscripts. Now, that's a lot. 50 manuscripts compared to three, compared to one. But how many do we have uh, in the New Testament? I didn't put that on there. We have over 5,800 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament. We also have countless citations of the New Testament manuscripts by way of writings of Christian teachers in the early church. These 23,000 cite- 23, huh? of them. 23,000. These citations alone are sufficient to basically reconstruct the entire New Testament. Just from citations. Can, can I add, and I'm not trying to steal your thunder, but also the gap in time between the original and the copies is much less. Yeah. Decades. Yeah, I have that, I have that next. Decades. Sorry. No, you're good. No, you're We're good. getting there. Yes. But yeah, that's my next thing is, is let's look at that. Let's look at the time frame. So uh, the, the Tacitus was the earliest manuscript we have of his writings almost 800 years after it was originally written. The Jewish War, from the, the earliest manuscripts we have from the 8th to 9th century, so 900 years after the original was written. And then the History of Rome, uh, roughly 800 years after the original was written, although we don't have that manuscript anymore, that one has been lost. And so the earliest one in existence is from the 16th century. So do the math there. A lot more time has passed. Well, a couple extra too. So Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, the writings on the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. We only have maybe a half a dozen, yeah, half a dozen manuscripts from that. And they surfaced over a thousand years after the originals. A thousand years. Next one, Homer's Iliad. Uh, best, Best example that we have as of numbers there are over a couple hundred documents and we we have several of them but the earliest ones that we could actually put our hands on are over 2000 years after the originals 2000 years and who who read homer what was it you said the iliad iliad who read that iliad in high and the odyssey all right we we consider that a historical book we consider that a book that's uh, you know this is what he wrote but we the manuscripts we have like i said yeah thousand years after he actually wrote it well even aristotle so aristotle's poetics uh we only have a dozen of those manuscripts and that wasn't even until a thousand years after the originals as well but people look at those as fact historical fact but yet we come forth with six thousand documents from the the um end of the first to early second century. And then after that, we have over twenty to 23,000 documents based on those 6,000 documents between the first and second century. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so let's look at the oldest 
manuscript that we have still of the New Testament. All right, it's called the P52. Actually, I think it's like P5 with like a two, like a, I don't know. It, I'm just going to go P52 because that's what it looked like to me. It looks like this. Um, it is a portion of John. It is John 18 verses 31 through 33 on one side of it. And on the other side is uh, 18 verses 37 and 38. It's around uh, uh, Jesus' trial with Pilate. And it's dated around AD 125. So the New Testament itself was written between AD 50 and AD 90. Uh, this means that the earliest manuscript dates only about 35 years after the last book of the New Testament was actually written. So Homer, 1,000 years, yep. right? Julius Caesar, hundreds and hundreds of years after they were actually written. We have a piece of, of parchment, granted it's small, but we have a piece of parchment that was 35 years after the original was written. So like, like Kevin said, that time frame is much, much shorter when it comes to the New Testament manuscripts that we have. Well, and that's, if the Bible isn't trustworthy at this point, no other works by any human author throughout history is reliable whatsoever. Just, that blows my mind. So, though the P52 is the earliest, we have many more manuscripts from the 2nd through 4th centuries. So the Codex Synacticus... Our earliest is our earliest complete manuscript of the New Testament, and it comes from about the 4th century. The relatively small temporal gap means it is unlikely that the textual tradition could have been radically changed during the period with, without there being evidence of those changes. So essentially, we're going to get to this claim here in a minute, that the writers would change what they were writing, what they were copying, to fit their theological beliefs. And we just don't have any evidence of that because we have these manuscripts that are from, su- you know, close to the time they were actually written. Right. So, yeah. All right. So to give a little bit of context of time, um, again, going back to um, reliable collection of historical documents, I want to go to Luke uh, chapter one, verses one through four. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having following all things closely, for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus, uh, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. As we look at the New Testament, there are um, a few people that weren't eyewitnesses, Luke being one, Mark being another. Um, as he says, he he's not an eyewitness, but he has been collecting this from other eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So Luke, um, he, he's mentioned and he's referenced to as um, a physician, um, a doctor, but he's also a, an, a historian. As he's collecting these facts... He is presenting them to Theophilus. Why? Verse 4, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. A certainty. So, uh, a a, a historian gathering facts, history, chronology, um, main two sources for Luke were um, Jesus' mother Mary and Peter. Um, Luke was confirmed by Paul, whereas Mark was confirmed by the Apostle Peter. So those are those are very important things. As we look at Scripture, um, for New Testament specifically, we have to look at the Apostles. Did they have anything to do with the Apostles? Were they written by the Apostles? And if they weren't, could they be confirmed by the Apostles? And were they able to align with what the Apostles were saying? And that's what we see with Luke. That's what we see with Mark. So, keeping that in mind. Um, uh, where am I at? So, okay, looking at a, a few differences, too, with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, or John was written mostly as an evangelistic-type piece, uh, whereas Luke was a, a historical fact and chronology. Uh, Matthew was written for the Jews. When Matthew has a chronology, the chronology is based off of Joseph, Joseph's bloodline, whereas Luke, I believe, is based off Mary's bloodline. Um, Mark, or Luke, Mark is a just to the point, here are the facts. If you've ever ever read Mark, one, it's the shortest gospel, but two, as he goes through, he's like, and then they did this, and then they proceeded here, and then here. And it's very quick, very fast pace, and moving on to the next point. Um, So, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Another context of time, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> now, I would remind you, brothers, <clears throat> of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, context of time. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He ascended. More than 500 people witnessed it. During the time that Paul wrote this letter, it is estimated that almost 300, like 301 people were still alive that had witnessed the resurrection of Christ. So, Written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Well, Paul himself calls himself an eyewitness too, right? Yeah. Remember his conversion on the road to Damascus. He he considers himself an eyewitness because he saw the resurrected Christ and he experienced the physical form of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. So why is this important? It's important 
the reason why it's important is because it means that the gospel message was falsifiable. Very important. Because when you are testing the veracity of a claim, if someone is making a claim and that claim cannot be falsified, it means you cannot test the claim. Uh, It's not really a strong claim if you can't falsify it. So this claim was falsifiable and no one did it. No one did it during the time of the apostles. They tried to suppress it. They tried to suppress People it. They tried to suppress the truth and tried yep. to they tried to discredit it, but they weren't able to. Yeah. It wasn't falsifiable because there were too many people that witnessed it. Too many people. So, from there, a little bit uh, for history too. So, looking at all the archaeological digs that we've done, we have over 25,000 archaeological digs that confirm biblical truth, that confirm biblical history. 25,000. None of them contradict it. They all go to support it, and that's huge. Again, just looking back, what we were talking about the um, manuscripts, you know, um, Homer's Iliad having a couple hundred, or Caesar's Gaelic Wars having maybe six. That In historical context, in having reliable collection of documents, that's actually huge. Having at least a dozen, that's actually huge. But to have 6,000, that's just impossible besides God. So having that in mind is is big. Um, where am I? You're at Lanesville. I am at Lanesville. Thank you. <laughs> Glad I could help. So, okay, uh, looking at the argument, but all of these books were written later. Okay, so looking at when we have this parchment right here, dated in 120, 125. Um, oh, well, that was written later, so we can't, we can't um, believe that it is reliable. Okay, well, going back to the other documents, how can you take Caesar's writings as reliable? How can you take Homer's? How can you take um, Aristotle's works as reliable? Well, they can't answer that because they do take them as reliable. So there's, there's, no, there's no basis there. Um, the other, so the other argument is, has the, has the Bible been translated so many times that you can trust it? So looking at ESV, King James, NIV, LTE, RESPCT, just all the other kinds of translations. There are so many. How can you trust that they're reliable? The reason why you can trust it is because, okay, so someone translate, okay, uh, they translated the original Hebrew manuscript into the Septuagint. It's not that they translated from Hebrew to Greek, and then they translated that Greek into um, a different one, and then they followed that one to another, to another, went to ESV, and then they translated from ESV to the NIV. The, that would become more of your telephone. I'm, I tell Jacob a story, he moves it down the line. But that's not how the translations work. How it works is I speak to you, and then I speak to you, and then I speak to you, and I speak to you, and I speak to every individual person here. That's going back to the original manuscripts, going back to these documents that we have that we can get an authorized translation from. That That's the important part. So... Um, 
So we're more, we are more capable now of looking at the earlier documents now than ever before. We have technology. We, you can't go on your computer and get stuff like this. You can get stuff like this, look at Hebrew, and translate it yourself if you want. I'm learning it is very, very difficult. I got to find someone to help me with that because I don't know. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> um, but we can do that. We have technology to do that. So yeah, we don't have the originals because of what they were written on. They didn't, they didn't survive time. Um, but what do we have? We have the 6,000 documents. Off of those 6,000 documents, we have 20 to 25 documents that are written about those. Um, so yeah, we have documents as early as 100 to 120, um, only decades after the New Testament was complete. This is where mine overlaps yours a little bit. So I'll go on and, and yeah. kind of start the next claim here that the variants or the differences in the New Testament specifically affect core theological beliefs. So I'm going to read a quote from a guy named Brett Ehrman. I've, I've read two different books over the last couple of months. Uh, one is a, a book called Jesus Interrupted. It's by, by a guy named Brett Ehrman. And he was a uh, former theologian, former Christian, who basically came to the conclusion that the Bible is not reliable. And he wrote a book about it. Um, I recommend if you are strong in your faith, read that book because it's good to understand what the other side thinks and some of these other claims that people are making. It's called Jesus Interrupted. Um, I wrote a book review on that book, and, and I think I made a comment in there, something to the effect of, look, I can understand if someone who is weak in their faith can take this book and read it, and yeah, it could shake them. It could, it could make them struggle, make them doubt. Because he brings up, he's a good writer, he's, he's smart, He's intelligent, and he makes somewhat compelling points if you don't have a good foundation in Scripture and as, as to what you believe. So read it, but read it with caution. Make sure you, you're solid in your faith. Um, big quote. Uh, I apologize, it's small. But we're going to break this quote down. It says, in some instances, the very meaning of the text is at stake, depending on how one resolves a textual problem. Was Jesus an angry man, as we see in Mark 1.41? Was he deeply distraught in the face of death, as we see in Hebrews? Did he tell his disciples that they could drink poison without being harmed? Did he let an adulteress off the hook with nothing but a mild warning? Is the doctrine of the Trinity explicitly taught in the New Testament? Is Jesus actually called the unique God? Does the New Testament indicate that even the Son of God himself does not know when the end will come? The questions go on and on, and all of them are related to how one resolves difficulties in manuscript tradition as it has come down to us. So, he is basically claiming that when we're looking at the New Testament, and we're, we're reading it from Matthew to Revelation, that there are many different inconsistencies. That he, he believes there are contradictions. He believes there are stories that don't match when you read the parallel stories, like in the Gospels, so to speak. Does he believe that these so-called contradictions are within one, like take one translation, that they're just between the books themselves or the letters themselves? Or does he believe it's that they are from uh, different manuscripts, that, that the sources are different? He, he believes sources. So he goes, sources yeah. are different. He goes back and he, he claims that because we're reading copies of copies <coughs> of copies, these variants and these differences show up, and we can't reconcile them. 
because they are copies of copies of copies. So he goes all the way back. That apparent contradictions between books or letters. Yeah. Are because we we don't have the original uh, first writing, and that the that the uh, the telephone game was played in the, in, in the, the yeah. manuscripts that were written after. Well, and also exactly. what, what he's. Also, what he's saying, too, is it's based on human error from, okay, say you have these monks that are going through, they have the the original copy of the original, and they're copying off that copy, word for word, comma for comma, exactly, and saying it's it's those guys who, oh, well, they could have mistaken a word, or they could have put a comma somewhere else, or they could have just changed it however they wanted. Well, and and we're going to talk next week... um, about one of his, another one of his claims. I got a lot of these claims from his book. Um, we're going to talk about one of his claims. I'm going to actually read it, and we'll, we'll get into that next week. But says that um, a couple of them. One, early Christians did not have the means to copy text accurately. So that's one of his, one of his big things. And the other one, he believes that the Orthodox scribes intentionally changed Scripture in order to fit their own personal belief system. So those who actually made the copies of the copies, changed it to fit their own agenda. And we're talk about that next week. But that that is where he's coming from, is from a, just from the beginning, this was messed up and this was wrong. So um, in a few of these cases, so we're looking at like First uh, John 5, 7, and 8, where he, where the Trinity is mentioned explicitly. Um, in John 7, 53, through 8.11, where he talks about letting the adulteress off a hook with nothing more than a mild warning. Uh, and then in Mark uh, 16.9-20, through 20, where he's talking about drinking poison. So in these three cases, almost all evangelical scholars and translations would agree with Brett Ehrman. Most modern Bibles exclude the variant Trinitarian formula found in 1 John 5.7-8. through 8. For there are there are three that testify in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these are and these three are one, due to manuscript evidence against such a reading. So he actually makes a couple of decent points here. There are a few of these that aren't necessarily in some of the older manuscripts, and so you'll notice in your Bible that there are going to be some brackets around some of these spots. With a little note at the end that says. A lot of early manuscripts do not contain this particular passage. Should those be completely disregarded? Wait, say it again. Well, and that's what I was going to say, too. He's picking fights. Wait, what should be? If I write something into my Bible that doesn't change the gospel, should that be taken as gospel truth? If you write it? Yeah. No. Okay, well, then should we just Well, let's say, in other words, these three variants specifically that he mentions are not highly disputed. Most critics, no matter what their theological commitments are, no matter what their belief system is, are in agreement over the earliest readings, and it's made clear in most Bible translations. Um, so for this guy, er- Ehrman, to uh, suggest that the original wording is a matter of debate and contention among scholars, it's not accurate. So a lot of it, um, again, like you said, it's just not, it doesn't change the gospel, doesn't change the meaning, but yes, there are those three particular instances where we, okay, a lot of people are in agreement. They weren't in the earliest manuscripts. So what's the implications of that? Um, well, you have to question how they got there, right? Yeah. Did somebody make it up? Or was there, is there a manuscript we don't have that they had that they were writing from? Well, and that's it. 
most of these, a lot of people say, okay, well, that wasn't in the original manuscripts, as in the first 6,000 that we see within that first century from 100 to, it was about 180. Somewhere, like we did uh, not long ago, and then in those jars, we find a whole bunch of new manuscripts that confirm everything. Right. Well, but, and we go back to those original 6,000, and from those original 6,000 within the next century, then we get surfaced manuscripts that we find with, they call added, that aren't original. And that's where, okay, then we get into the discernment, where we get into the councils of, okay, did what does this belong here? Was it actually prophetic word from God, or was it just man-made? And that's where we get into the discernment part. So actually, I have a scenario here, not a scenario, but truth, I get this from Vodi, Vodi Bauckham. So I'm, I'm going to read this out. This makes sense. Here it is. So uh, another big uh, argument that people have is they look back at Constantine, Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire. Back when the original Council of Nicaea gathered in 325 AD, a lot of people go back and say, oh, well, it was just Constantine picking what he wanted to be in the Bible and what he didn't. All right, let's pick that apart a little bit. First, 6,000 manuscripts, several hundred years before Constantine, written in Greek. So, if the monks during the time of Constantine would have had to find, they would have had to find 6,000 Greek manuscripts, change them all the exact same way, don't share your ink work, don't get caught, never tell anyone what you did. Second one, Matthew 28, verse 19, when Christ says, make disciples of all nations, it is... Pentatal ethne, nations of all people. Problem with different nations, different languages. Within the first few centuries, the gospel is translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So now, the monks have to find 6,000 Greek documents, change them all the exact same way, don't share your ink work, don't get caught. Then, they would have to learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, as well as they lie in Greek, because those 6,000 documents have to match the translations of all the other languages that they've been translated into. Third issue, the early church fathers, they had this thing that they would do. They would quote and write commentaries on all those original texts. So much so that if we had all of the writings of the early church fathers within the first century, we could retranslate the New Testament all but 11 verses. All but 11 verses. So, now, uh, looking at those zealous monks have to find 6,000 Greek manuscripts and portions of manuscripts, change them all the exact same way, don't share their ink work, don't get caught, learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, um, as well as Greek, and all the writings all over the world, change them the exact same way, find all of the writings of the early church fathers, ch uh, change all of them to match all the rest, and they have to all match. That's impossible. Literally impossible. 6,000 original documents in Greek translated into three different languages, Syriac, Coptic, Latin. They have to lie in four different languages, and then from the early church fathers from the first century... We have over twenty to 25,000 manuscripts from the early church fathers that come directly from those original manuscripts. And those are the ones that we can retranslate the Bible 
all but 11 verses. And we know that because they've actually done it multiple times. So just mind-blowing. So let's look at a few other examples that, that this guy Brett um, gets into. Talk about Mark being angry. So we're going to assume that his, uh, his uh, proposals, his claims are true. So if Mark were depicting Jesus as being angry in Mark 141, this would not be the only place where the New Testament portrays Jesus as angry or indignant. We see it in Matthew uh, 21. We see it in Matthew 23. The Bible in no way equates all anger with sin. So Brett's claim here is that the anger that Jesus portrayed in Mark and in Matthew is sinful anger. And so he says, well, that goes against the idea that Jesus was sinless, so therefore the Bible must not be true. The New Testament must not be reliable. Well, the Bible does not equate all anger with sin, so it doesn't cause any kind of theological problem to say that Jesus was angry in those moments. So no matter which reading is adopted, whether we believe Jesus was angry, whether we believe he wasn't angry, whatever the case may be, it doesn't cause any kind of theological problem. So we can actually take that argument and kind of set it aside and say, look, dude, this does not pose an issue. Yes, Jesus was angry. Yes, it's okay to be angry as long as you're doing so without sinning. We see that example in Jesus. So, Hebrews 2, 8 through 9. Someone read that for me. Someone look it up and read Hebrews 2, 8 through 9. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not quite close. And put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So, what is the theological, theological significance, if this guy is right, in Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, depicting Jesus as distraught in the face of death? According to Brett Ehrman, the author of Hebrews repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus died a fully human Shameful death, totally removed from the realm whence he came, the realm of God. This is a direct quote. His sacrifice as a result was accepted as the perfect ex expiation for sin. Moreover, God did not intervene in his passion and did nothing to minimize his pain. The, Jesus died apart from God. But, as Dan Wallace has pointed out, uh, another author, if this is the view of Jesus throughout Hebrews, how does the variant that... Airman adopts in 2.9 change the portrait. That argument undercuts itself. Jesus was fully human. Therefore, in the moment of death, when or approaching death, facing death, his human emotions were there. He was distraught. He did not want to die. So why is that an issue when we talk about Jesus being distraught? Why is that an issue? Any, any, any ideas as to why? It would be a theological issue if Jesus was distraught when he was about to die. People look at it as it might be a mistake. <clears throat> no, yeah. It's not. It, he died a fully human and fully God. I think all these people picking on the Bible are not saved to begin with. True. They're trying to pick apart. You read the Bible and, and you spiritually feel. Well, there's mysteries in the Bible we ain't going to ever know. We don't have to understand all the mysteries that are in Jesus and the mysteries in the Bible. You know, how many books can you read? An inspiration book? Motivational speakers? Renovational, yeah, how many of them can you read 
and turn around a week, two weeks later and get a conviction. Watch this with you. You know, the Bible gives the Spirit will convict you and you will remember that. And that's God breathed in you. God living inside of you. Motivation, you might be on fire for a weekend, then come Monday. Ah. Well, yeah. And there's no conviction that comes after you after that motivation. Now nah, that was useless. You know, but the Bible is not like that. Well, well and it may come across too as like, I don't have a great answer for these. It's because these issues that he brings up aren't really big issues. But it's issues issues that you're going (laughs) to face from time to time, right? You're going to see people ask about, well, what about the copies of copies? What about Jesus being, you know, afraid of death or or being distraught about death or, or, you know, Jesus being angry? They're they're not really issues if you understand the Bible, if you understand and and know what's actually being said. Because what they're doing is they're taking things out of context, right? And they're looking at one verse and saying, well, this contradicts everything else in the Bible. And well, it just yeah. doesn't happen. Right. You have to take it as a whole. They're making straw man arguments. But these are the arguments you're going to face. Well, on the other side of that, too, is lack of understanding. As we see, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is a spiritual book. Understanding comes from the Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand it. So, when you read that Jesus wept and he was petitioning God to take this cup for me, most people will read that as God didn't want, Christ didn't want to die, he was afraid of death. No, no. We read it as Christ did not want to be separated from God the Father, because he had never been separated from God the Father. Infinity. So, that's the difference. As believers, we read it with understanding, whereas they read it from a strictly historical, natural, the natural person's knowledge. That's the difference. Yeah. So look at this one where he says, is Jesus actually called the unique God in John 1.18? Um, he's talking about word differences here from the translations from the Greek, all right? So some of your versions are going to say, let's actually read a few different versions. So I'm going to read mine. Mine's in the ESV. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, let's get a couple more versions um, of, of that verse. Anybody got something different besides ESV? Anybody have New King James? Yeah. No one has seen God at any time. The only God Son who is in the bosom of the Father is the Spirit. Okay, another one? One more. NIV. I got the NLT. NLT. He's never seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, near to the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. So, no matter if Jesus is called only God or only Son, as we see different variants in our translations, only God or only Son, in John 1 18, both readings still fit well within the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament. So, with regard to Jesus' deity, John opens up the Gospel by affirming that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And this is later identified as Jesus, if you look at John 1.14 and John 1.14 and John 1.17. 
He closes the gospel with Thomas's confession of Jesus as my Lord and my God. So with regard to Jesus's unique sonship, this is clearly affirmed in passages such as John 1.14 or John 3.16. There are no significant textual differences. So this guy, Brett Ehrman, says, well, Jesus calls himself the only God or the only son, which means, therefore, the rest, it contradicts the rest of the New Testament because there's only one God. Well, now he's saying there's two because he's God and God the Father's God, and he's trying to confuse you, trying to get you to, you know, not understand, that, that uh, basically deny the Trinity. And we understand that if you read Scripture, and again, Scripture interprets itself, and you look at a doctrine and you say, okay, does this doctrine fit with the rest of the Bible? And the doctrine of Jesus being God fits with the rest of the Bible when it comes to the Trinity. Right. There's so many other verses that support the Trinity that, you know, yes, it's unfortunate the King James Version translated it one way as opposed to what we believe is the accurate way. But, right. but taking this one verse and trumping the majority, you know, many other verses... It doesn't make sense, right? You know, it's, yeah. like I said, you've got to have an understanding of other scripture, right? Before you pull one out and just try to make a case on that. And, and this yeah. does seem simplistic Variation. in our answers, and it's because what he's trying to do is he's trying to take the words and say, "Well, we can't know what the original words mean." So when he says he's the only son or the only God, there's a difference there. So why does that, you know, why is that difference there between the books? And he'll. Actually, throughout his entire book, and we're actually going to go through some of this in a couple weeks, um, he talks about if you read the, the crucifixion story in all four Gospels, you will see differences. And people like Brett uh, Ehrman say that those differences mean these accounts cannot be true. These accounts cannot be consistent because they have different different things in them, right? right. You know, each each author of the Gospels point to different events that took place during the crucifixion. That proves that it is true. Exactly. We're going to get into that because that's, yeah. that's one of the points is yeah. it does. It proves the that it is true. The authors of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, did they write as it happened or did they write years later afterwards? Years later. That's good. Yeah. So, think. okay, think of it well, this way. My question right. was, uh, say Simon went to... Africa. Yeah. Okay. Ten years ago, he gets home, tells his mom and dad everything about it. Twenty years down the line, he's trying to tell me. He's not going to remember everything, but he knows he went to Africa. Well, okay, but take and take this. So all these things happen to the apostles. Okay. Christ dies. He's resurrected. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven. Five hundred people see him. What do those apostles do? They do, do they go home and sit? No. For the next several decades, as long as each one lives, they are preaching about what they saw every day of their lives. So for the next, say, 30, 40 years, they're preaching and teaching this story. So towards the end, when they write this story, they've been telling this story every day for the rest of their lives. So when Paul write, or sits down and he's writing these letters... He has, um, what's that called? Um, when you do something and you have that, I, I lost. 
muscle memory, kind of like that, but I, whatever, whatever. Uh, so, but like um, Matthew, when he sits down and he writes, when John sits down and he writes, they have been telling the story every day. So it is fresh on their mind. That too. But then what plays into it is the Holy Spirit within them. It is that we believe this is the Word of God. It is not just the book of John. John gave us what he, he knows of what happened to Christ. It's he wrote down, but the Holy Spirit through him spoke through him. So that is the Word of God, the Logos. As he says, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, these words are God speaking to us. Yeah. So, okay, looking at, okay, 66 books in the Bible. Uh, do, does anyone have a Bible with the book of Tobit in it? Or Judith? What? At your house? Okay. So the Gospel of uh, Thomas or the Gospel of Peter? Or the book of Enoch? So why these books and not those? Uh, when we look through Scripture, when we uh, read the portions where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, did they ever get into a, a debate or a discussion of what was Scripture and what wasn't? No, never. Whenever Jesus spoke to them, he said, Do you not know that it was said? Or have you not read in the book of the prophets? Or have you not read this, that this was said? And there was no contingent on, oh, well, actually, we, we didn't accept that book. We only accepted these books. No. They accepted the word of God as the word of God. And it wasn't because a council got together and said, hey, these are the books that we are believing in. No, whenever... Uh, the book of Isaiah was completed whenever the prophecy was pronounced by Isaiah. It was the word of God. So when we look at history and we can actually look at the manuscripts of the Old Testament, um, it talks about how the, the book or the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it was actually laid up in the temple 200 years before Christ was even born. So 200 years before Christ was born, they had solidified, okay, these are the words of God. And being God's chosen people, God spoke to them, as we see in Hebrews 1.1. In the, in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and now he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. God spoke to them through the prophets. They knew it was the word of God. Well, look at, look at the people of Israel. And if we're going to talk about the Old Testament for just a second, and we'll kind of wrap up. Um, there is not a culture in the world that has their religion tied into it as much as the people of Israel. Yeah. Their religious identity and their cultural identity go hand in hand. They are – I mean, your, your scholars, your Jewish scholars, your, your, Hebrew, your Hebrew people are staunch historians. They cherish their history, their religious history. They cherish their uh, cultural history. Yeah. And so they are going to just on a worldly level, they're going to preserve their history. It was like that in, in the times of Jesus, in the times of the prophets. They, their history, their religion were all tied together. So they are going to preserve mm -hmm. their own their, what they believe to be the scriptures. They're going to preserve yeah. that. Just take out the Holy Spirit for a second, yeah, and just realize they found that important, and they want to make sure that they kept their history intact and add in the Holy Spirit guiding them to do so, and, and God guiding them to do so, and God speaking to them 
through the prophets and through Moses and through Noah. Or not Noah. Well, but yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Noah, stop it. I'm going back to written, no, written, non-written. It's I know, fine. Written. But yeah, they are going to preserve that. They are going to yeah. do everything in their power to preserve that history. They they are a proud his people when it comes to their history. Right. Well, and we can look looking back at Luke, looking back at how he could take Jesus's lineage all the way back to David, going back to Matthew taking Joseph's lineage all the way back to David. They were so astute to the Jewish people of keeping records of who they were related to. And all of it was kept in the temple. Now, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they lost all of it. But there's a, there's a point, but we won't go there. But so after even that, the Jewish people keeping that, then you put in the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We believe that God has preserved his word ever since he gave it. Why would God put that effort into give us this inspired word and then just let it go? Uh, so say uh, we have First and Second uh, Corinthians, the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Well, it's surface. There are two other letters to the Corinthians. And so people are like, oh, well, why don't we have those in the Bible? Okay. One, we look at the point of scripture. What is the point of scripture? The scripture is for the edification of God's people and the church. We have to look at these other books and say, okay, does this edify God's people? Does it bring a new revelation from God based on other scriptures? And does this build up the church? Looking at these other books, they don't. And then we get into the actual dating and the uh, third and second book or the letter of Corinthians was actually written late first century, almost into second century, whereas Paul did not write them at that time. As we read in first Corinthians, he wrote it during the time where there was, oh, there were still 300 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Whereas we get into the other gospels, they're known as the Gnostic gospels. They found them in the... Uh, Oh, what are they called? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. The Gnostic Gospels. You see the Gospel of Peter. You see the Gospel of Thomas. And people are like, oh, well, why don't we have that in Scripture? Well, you look at them and say, well, have you read them? If you read through the Gospel of Peter, you'll read um, uh, first four Gospels. When we read of the resurrection of Christ, do we actually get to see Christ come out of the tomb? No. No, we don't see Christ come out of the tomb. All we, all we read is that the women came and found the tomb empty. Well, in the Gospel of Peter, it says there was someone there who watched Christ roll away the stone, step out of the tomb, and he was a giant. It says he stepped out of the tomb as a giant and his heads reached the clouds. And even weirder than that, then a cross came out behind him speaking and prophesying. So it's like, okay... Did you, did, yeah, have you read the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas? 
and how much it goes against and contradicts the rest of Scripture. Now, you're not saying that your assumption there is Peter didn't actually write that. Correct. That someone wrote that when all these gospels were coming out. Correct. And wrote some fan fiction and was like, hey, I'll make some quick money I like that this. fan fiction. It is. Or like, I'll start a cult with this. Back it is. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, another pure, good example is the book of Enoch. A lot of people read through the book of Enoch and say, why isn't this in the Old Testament? And you have. You have two apocryphas. The apocrypha just means hidden. You have Apocrypha from the Old Testament and the Apocrypha from the New Testament. And you get the, the book of the Maccabees. You get the, the book of Tobed and Judith and the book of Enoch. And it takes discernment because you have to read through this. I've read through the first and second book of Enoch. And it's terrifying. It's, it's scary. It's weird. But the scary part is how much it contradicts the rest of Scripture. Uh, it talks about Enoch literally numbering and counting every single star. It talks about how the fallen angels went to Enoch and said, Enoch, go to God and ask for repentance for us because we're sorry for what we did. And how Enoch went to heaven, talked to God, asked for repentance for the fallen angels, and God said no. And it, it, it's filled with countless stuff like that. Um, it talks about the, the brother of Noah and his wife and just stuff that we cannot back up with Scripture, and there's nothing else that backs it. And so they're like, oh, well, the Bible is missing these things. It's like, well, no, they're not, because those are not the Word of God. And it goes back to, okay, looking at the Old Testament, the Jews knew. First of all, we have no historical accuracy at all whatsoever that the book of Enoch was during that time. The first time we actually see the book of Enoch surface is late 2nd to 3rd century. And then we find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls during the 1940s. Oh, we, actually found, we actually found the Book of Enoch uh, 1950s. So there, there's no historical accuracy saying that it's actually real. And there was a big push. It was a very after, big push. After, um, <laughs> I mean, just Saul's, you know, Saul was originally a persecutor of the way. And then on the road to Damascus, he was converted to Paul, right? right? So during that time, there was plenty of, of people, I mean, well-to-do Jews, Pharisees, <coughs> trying to stomp out of the way. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, and, and, it, and it took discernment. So say, okay, they're still singing, so we're okay. Okay, so take the, the Council of Nicaea, 325. That's where people say, okay, that's where they put the canon together, and that's how we were able to determine what was in the Bible or not. Well, we believe that the canon of Scripture was closed around 90 AD, when around the time that the Apostle John wrote Revelation, canon was closed. God knew what he wanted there, and that was it. Now, it took several hundred years for humans to be able to look at all of the writings and say, okay, does this match up with this? Okay, does this match up with this? So we actually have a um, document or one or two documents from an early church father about 130 to 150 AD with almost half of the canon from the Old and New Testament on that document. That's from first century. Where we get a complete 66 books of the Bible is it was about 350, 360 AD. After the Council of Nicaea, where they didn't actually put it together to just then. It was about 360 AD. We get a, an earlier church father or a later church father that have 
in a letter written all 66 books of the Bible saying this is what we have found to be authoritative based on what we have found. And there, there is so much more. We don't have time. But we, well, we might jump into this yeah. a little bit more next week. So next week we've got a few more claims we're going to get into that are a little more clear, a little more you know, e- easier to understand. Also, we're going to be going for a few extra weeks, I think. I talked to a couple people about that. Yeah. But, um, I put my email address up there. That's a zero, not an O. That's why there's a line through it. But if you have any questions specifically that you've run across, that you've heard, that you would want to be addressed, uh, shoot me an email. And we'll get into that maybe that la- the last week we do this or the last two weeks we do this if we get a lot of questions. Because um, we're going to miss things and we're not going to cover everything by yeah. any means. So, um, But next week we're going to finish off with a few claims and then we're going to dive into contradictions. Like specific supposed contradictions that people will bring up consistently. So. Um, Kyle, will you close us out? <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you for this day, and we appreciate the opportunity to get into your word and to study it and to understand uh, what it is that um, the unsaved would come to us with, what it is that we would be, uh, maybe maybe uh, people would come to us and say, well, why is this? Why is that? And Lord, we, we just appreciate the opportunity to try to get some, for lack of a better term, ammunition to answer these questions and to fight back and to, and to uh, explain to them what the Bible really says. But Lord, I'm mindful of the fact that without a good walk, a Christian walk, without faith, without trusting in you, from our end, we can't convince anyone. So let us have a good testimony, testimony, Lord, as we go into our workplaces this week and keep us safe and guard us till next week we come back together in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So if you did talk today, you'll hear yourselves online on Wednesday. (laughs) So you know. (laughs) That's true.